0: Oh, on the 1st of March, we're doing a Maeve in America live show. It's at Subculture, and you can get your tickets at subculturenewyork.com. Hello, howdy, good talk, au revoir. It is me, it's Maeve from Maeve in America. Welcome to the show. Bienvenido a ma showy. Each week we hear from an immigrant, we hear their story in their own words, and what better timing, am I right? It is literally the best time in the history of the world to be an immigrant to the U.S., a. it's really not, especially if you're Syrian.
1: Donald Trump Jr. posted what many call an offensive tweet likening America's Syrian refugee problem to a bowl of Skittles. At least 27 governors, nearly
0: all of them Republican, said they will take steps to not allow Syrian refugees into their states.
2: Take a pause in this particular aspect of this refugee program. In order to verify that terrorists are not trying to infiltrate the refugee population. With a
1: stroke of a pen,
3: President Donald Trump bans refugees from Syria indefinitely.
0: So the ban has been stayed for now. But there's not even that many Syrians here anyway. The US accepted just 18,000 Syrian refugees from 2011 to 2016. But we found a Syrian person right here in New York City. He's new and he's wonderful.
4: If you ask anybody on the street, everybody having an American passport, What does it mean for you? Nothing. It's just a paper where you can travel with. For us, it's life. It's everything.
0: You're going to meet him really soon. But first, as always, I need to check in with my girl Mona Chalabi. She's the dateless data editor of The Guardian US. And she's got some stats for us. Dada, please. Dada, please. Welcome to the studio. Hi, am You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and they say things like, we're Now we're in the stud.
3: Stooed? No, that's terrible. Okay.
0: I don't, don't just want to be like, say, my
3: sister in statistics, Mona Tullaby. I was going to say, oh my pod, but that's terrible. Set the setting a little bit.
0: We're in a studio in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah. You had a hard time finding it. Um, I'm drinking cold coffee. I think it feels like we're 1980s reporters.
3: Yeah. It's like we're
0: Cagney and Lacey. But with laptops. Yeah, but with laptops and no guns. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah, because they were cops. (laughs) I don't even know who Cagney and Lacey are. I always just nod at cultural references that I don't understand.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mona, I'm a comedian and you're a journalist. But today we're talking about Syria.
1: Now when a group of children were arrested for scrawling anti-government graffiti on a wall in Syria, no one really could have predicted what would follow. Well, the war has now entered its fifth year. The
0: devastation of Syria's civil war, hundreds of thousands of lives lost, millions more forced from their homes, ancient cities and historic sites decimated. As the Syrian government continues to push its offensive in and around the Aleppo area, I thought what would be good is to just get our facts
3: straight. Mm -hmm. So do you know how many people have moved? So the first thing I would say is how rare is this person that we have on the show? And the fact is, the fact that they have been displaced because of the conflict is not rare at all. The fact that they have ended up in America is kind of incredible. And now I'm going to give you context on that. Okay. Since the civil war began in 2011, a lot of people have obviously had their lives torn apart. 13.5 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance, actually inside the country. Numbers like that, that are millions, it's so difficult to make sense of them. So, one really simple way is to just look at the size of the Syrian population, right? So, mm-hmm. I have figures from the World Bank here. So there are about 18.5 million people in Syria. Uh, in 2015, which means that three quarters of the entire population of Syria are in need of humanitarian assistance right now. Three out of every four people.
0: And when you say they're in need of humanitarian assistance, they've left the country
3: or they're inside the country? Those figures about you know, three quarters of people need humanitarian assistance. Those are just the people within the country. And wow. this is something that people, I think, forget very, very often when they're talking about immigration. As you know, I used to work for the International Organization for Migration. And it's very easy for people to focus just on refugees because they're the visible side of migration. that They've crossed a the border. Mm-hmm. And very often it's the people who are trapped within the country who have even fewer means. And it's particularly
0: in Syria's case, I think that a lot of aid organisations are not allowed in exactly. there. So. IDPs are internally displaced people. Exactly. There are
3: 6.3 million IDPs in Syria, but 11 million in total have been displaced from their homes. That is enough to fill 200 Yankee stadiums. We also know, according to the Syrian Centre for Policy Research, Mm -hmm. that 12% of the population of Syria have been killed or injured since the start of the civil war. 12%.
0: This is probably like a very privileged thing to say, but like, That's very hard for me to imagine.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Do you know? No, but I completely agree. And the only way to imagine is to think of like one in 10 people that I know being killed or injured. And it's emotionally incomprehensible to me to find myself in that situation. Like I don't understand how you kind of continue, but people do somehow.
0: We'll get back to Mona later in the show. But for now, here's one of those people that did manage to continue. He is six foot one and tons of fun. Honestly, we're around the same age, but he seems like an uncle type to me. Sort of like you know someone who'd help you with your taxes, but also be super fun at a wedding.
4: My name is Muhammad Zaza. Everybody called me Zaza mm-hmm. <laughs> since we have a lot of Muhammad's in my country. In my company, we have like three hundred fifty Muhammad. So if you call Muhammad, everybody would answer. So. If- <laughs>
0: It's a rainy day and I've come to see Zaza at work. He manages an upmarket luggage store just off Fifth Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. It's a super slick place. The staff wear all black clothes and he shows me around this huge showroom.
4: When you, when you uh, walk downstairs, you'll mm-hmm. find all the travel accessories that you need. The second floor, which is the biggest, in New York City, I believe, for, for luggage business. We carry most of the famous brands. Some of them are exclusive to, to us. And I have Lamborghini as well. It's a ten thousand dollar luggage. It's a bulletproof. I don't know who, who would use it. I can do a demonstration for <laughs> you. <laughs> so the Lamborghini oh is a carbon fiber luggage, and the same material they used in doing the Lamborghini cars. You know the Lamborghini cars. I have so one. It's the same. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: How did he end up here? Well, we'll find out. But first, I want you to hear what it was like growing up in Syria. Zaza is from Homs. That's a city between Damascus and Aleppo. And growing up under a dictator sounds crazy. His school was super strict and they even wore green uniforms, kind of like tiny soldiers.
4: At the, an age of nine years, uh, you feel like you're in, in serving in the army.
0: Kids were often beaten for no reason, and self-expression, it just wasn't allowed.
4: The fear is the factor that's controlling our life. It's only fear. We study because we are scared. We play because we are scared. Uh, We eat because we are scared.
0: And this little army, they had one focus.
4: It's all about the one guy, which is the the leader, which is the president. Uh, The history of the president. How good is the president? Uh, how uh, It's like worshiping the president. Imagine like at age of 11, we need to memorize his speeches. And every morning you say the same thing, which is our leader forever is Hafez al-Assad. And uh, we are the fighters for Syria. When I remember those things, yes, I was a kid, but we used to act like men.
0: And then it was time for the actual army. A two and a half year service is mandatory in Syria for all 18 year old men.
4: And this two years and a half, they break your personality. Serving means uh, for other countries is to uh, love your country, is to uh, is to respect your country. For us, it's to serve uh, the army by, by serving people, certain people. Uh, The whole concept behind this is to control us. So at that point, I felt like I need to leave. And my dream was to study business. And uh, so I, I chose to go to Lebanon.
0: At that point, in order to leave Syria, Zaza had to pay his way out of the draft and agree to stay living outside of the country for at least five years. He worked every job he could find and saved up money for college in Beirut. Moving to a more open society was a huge culture
4: shock. I went through a depression for, for almost like six months because I, I was thinking about buying my freedom, running away from the army. And other people were thinking about what major they would choose in university. Most of the people are having girlfriends and it's only daydreaming with me. And a lot of people gave up at that stage. A lot of them. And later, I would tell you, those are the people who started the revolution.
0: After college, Zaza flew up the corporate ladder. He started as a salesman in Qatar for a cosmetics brand, and he thinks his success was in part due to the authoritarian place he grew up in.
4: All these negative things that I talked about from since I born till the age of 24, now I get something positive, hmm. which is uh, I'm responsible, I'm mature, I know how to uh, lead. So I didn't let anything uh, stop me from from doing uh, the achievement. Even if I have like a small relationship or a love story with someone at that time, it it has to be serving the goal. They need to understand (laughs) that (laughs) that I have a goal that I need to move forward. Very romantic. Yeah. (laughs) The only thing that pushed me forward is I don't want to go back to that situation where I'm afraid, where somebody controlling my life. But at the same time, I was having a dream to go back to Syria. Mm. I mean, to go back, deep inside, all of us were saying that some, something has to change. And we used to talk about that. Like, this is not fair. Something should happen.
0: And as we know, something did happen. The Arab Spring happened. It started in Tunisia in late 2010. And back then, Zaza was working in Qatar, but he was home in Homs on vacation.
4: So I was visiting my family and that night I remembered clearly because I felt like a new life started because I was watching TV and I saw the Tunisian revolution and I didn't sleep for two days. I smoked two packs without even noticing. Just watching the television and seeing that is this real? Is it happening? The dream was there. I didn't even focus on working. Just watching news and see like, if it's happening in Tunisia, now it's happening in, in Libya, then now in Egypt, then why it could not happen in my country? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm
0: good. I'm just worried about all the cigarettes you smoked and all this excitement.
4: <laughs> I just remember, I don't know whom to blame, but why? It, it could have been more easier.
0: Is it the memory of the hope?
4: Yeah. Mm. Exactly. This is the word, because it's not fair. Like one guy is controlling your life, mm-hmm. and you see that all the people they just want freedom. I don't know what went wrong. Why it took us like six years now, seven years? I don't know. I don't even understand it. No, I just, I just remember exactly that uh, that time. I was ready to. to to give away everything, to get the chance to see my country like others.
0: Before this horrifying war all started, there was hope that a revolution could bring a new freedom to Syria. Let's hear from our context queen for today, Leila al shami She's a British-Syrian human rights activist who co-wrote Burning Country, Syrians in Revolution and War, which is this brilliant book, and it really explains very well just how this conflict began. In early 2011, the Syrian people took to the streets and I asked Leila about Zaza's hometown of Homs.
1: Homs was a very important centre for the revolution in those early days. Um, We saw protests of thousands to Clock Square, which is a central area in Homs, and in a way they tried to liberate that. And it was really a remarkable atmosphere there. We saw people chanting, we saw people singing, and we saw many people were going around distributing leaflets against sectarianism, calling for unity of all Syrian citizens.
0: We'll be right back to hear how a forgotten visa led Zaza to New York. Mona Chalaby returns with more data. And as always, we end the show with a Cheer Up Charlie moment. This week, it's comedian Dave Hill making a very important call to the White House. Welcome back and thank you so much for listening to Maeve in America. Back now to Mona Chalabi. At the top of the show, she told us how many people were forced to leave Syria. And now we're going to talk about where they went. So we've been talking about, say, like how many Syrians the US took. What about Syria's neighbours? I know that there's like huge numbers of refugees in Jordan, huge numbers in Turkey.
3: So there's a huge number in Those countries that you kind of tried to say. (laughs) Jordan. Jordan. Turkey. Turkey and Lebanon. And Lebanon. And basically one in five people in Lebanon right now is a Syrian refugee because Lebanon's such a small country. Yeah, So proportionally, it's huge. It's huge. Even in Iraq as well. And the thing that's really tragic about Iraq is obviously the country is in a mess in and of itself. And then it's taken in Syrian refugees. Yeah. You know, I had family members who moved to Syria after the war in Iraq. Mm. So not all of those Syrian refugees are quote-unquote Syrians, There was a lot of Palestinian refugees, I think, in Syria too. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm. So imagine these people have moved from one disaster and are now being moved again and thinking, where on earth do I go now? Mm -hmm. There are also neighbouring countries like Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and Bahrain, who together offers zero places to Syrian refugees not a single one Extraordinary Yeah And I don't even think they're offering any kind of public rationale for that Like I haven't heard a statement from the United Arab Emirates or from Kuwait as far as I'm aware being like hey guys this is the reason why we're taking none it's just like nope
0: Yeah I've kind of heard you know oh we're helping in other ways like financial aid but the fact of the matter is like it's the people who need
3: (laughs) somewhere to live Yeah Yeah it's amazing I'm sure there's a lot of politics behind that, without a doubt. Yeah.
0: Understatement of the year, babe. <laughs> <laughs> Mona, thank you. Thanks, Maeve. While his family and friends in Homs were out on the streets, Zaza was back working in Qatar, scheduled to host a conference for Wella, showcasing their hair care products, but he was totally unable to focus.
4: And I forget about Wella and the her protests and everything. And I went with 400 Syrian, the first uh, protest we did in Qatar. And I was on someone's shoulders and was shouting. How did that feel? I felt like the first time I can breathe. It was amazing feeling. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Literally, it was the best time ever. The feeling of that, that you can speak, is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think they call it freedom.
0: But that freedom, it was short-lived. The regime cracked down on the peaceful protests. They shot and they killed them and they arrested hundreds. Here's Leila al Shami again.
1: Many of those people later turned up and tortured to death. Um, the violence then escalated to firing SCUD missiles on residential areas. The regime was also sending in Syrian army soldiers into dissenting communities and conducting mass rape campaigns.
4: We were playing the same role that the people were playing before they started killing us. Because our friends in Homs would go to the streets and they take videos. Mm-hmm. And our job is to post it on the TVs because Assad did not allow any reporters and TVs to go to Syria. So the only way to tell the right story is through our friends. You're doing your job, but somebody is losing his life. So you were talking to someone on on Skype and we were laughing and, and planning. And the second day you wake up, you open the news and you see him dead. And it starts increasing dramatically every day, 10, 15, from your friends. You feel yourself responsible. Maybe I'm pushing them to do that.
0: If one of my friends dies, it's devastating. So can you explain how is it? how does it feel and also how you can keep going day to day?
4: It's two things. First, you feel like you don't want to continue and you blame yourself. But next day you wake up and you say, if I stopped, then he died for nothing. So he needed to continue.
0: As the situation at home worsened, so did Zaza's situation in Qatar. It came down to paperwork for him. Historically, the Gulf states don't recognise displaced people as refugees. And to apply for legal permanent residency there, Zaza needed a passport. But his Syrian one only had three months left before it expired and he couldn't get a new one because he was blacklisted by the regime.
4: One of the weapons that Assad used against us is, I don't want to give you documents. Come back and serve in the country, serve in the army. So giving you two options, either to fight against your family and kill your brothers, or to stay without any identity.
0: About to be stateless, he had to move to make a decision.
4: It's just a decision just to keep us safe. While you you find people like you from other countries, Taking decisions based on emotions, based on uh, development, based on career, based on whatever. But our decision was based on safety. We want a place that people can treat us as a human being.
0: Wait, so who's this we? Well, I think Zaz is referring to himself and his wife Reem. She is a Tunisian chemist with a sleek blonde bob. As they say in France, Reem is très chic. And as we say in Ireland, I'm jealous of her. The two met in Qatar, and like every good romance, there was chocolate involved.
1: (laughs) First time when he saw me, you know.
4: At that time, like, I ate a lot of chocolate. Maybe that's the reason. (laughs) Because I was high. She was coming, actually, uh, for a one-year project from France. Yeah. Oh. So I met her there. So before she finished the project, I married her.
0: <laughs> in the pages of that passport, he found a temporary business visa. He'd gotten it a couple of years previously to attend a marketing conference in Texas. And it was still valid.
4: I spoke to my wife. I told her it's either we will end up in a refugee camp or we'll take this and go. And it was not guaranteed because B-1 visa, the officer in the States can can reject me and send me back home. So it was a risk.
1: Mm.
4: And we took the flight and it was the longest 16 hours in my life. Seeing all your dreams, all your memories, all your families.
0: Where did you fly to?
4: Chicago. They told us it's a... Good airport. <laughs> I remember the sixteen hours. Seriously, it was like when you when you are in Qatar or in Arabic and Middle East, you still feel that yes, I will see my mother, I will see my father. Mm-hmm. But when when we start flying in the flights, you see the screen, and I saw that we passed Europe. As I felt like we're still close, but when we crossed the the ocean, as you are like just saying goodbye to everybody, so you start to remember everything. I saw it on the flight, the minute I born till the minute I took that flight, and even the worst is not, they don't allow us to take a lot of things in that flight because we're supposed to be visitors. So I had to take a carry-on with with a big luggage, and that's it. So I need to choose what to put on that carry-on and that luggage. So I put all my life in that luggage. You cannot take uh, even the mug that you drink your coffee with. couldn't take anything. I took pictures. Thanks God there's phones that I can save pictures for. And that's it.
0: The couple have been here now for just over two years, and Zaza is still waiting on his asylum interview. Until he gets that, he can't travel, which is kind of ironic for a luggage salesman. But for Reem and Zaza, life goes on. She Where did help.
1: you have Kareem? Uh, it was November 26, 2015.
4: Ah. In Springfield, yeah. Illinois. Yeah. Little Simpson. Lincoln.
1: Lincoln. <laughs> uh, it was Thanksgiving it was at Thanksgiving. that time. The Day of Thanksgiving. That's why we call them
4: Karim. Yeah. Karim means, in English, means, gorgeous. Aww. Oh. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you little refugee. Oh, little refugee. Oh,
0: <laughs> and now to finish up the show, it's time for Cheer Up Charlie. To Cheer Up Charlie. Cheer up, Charlie. Here is an intercepted phone call made by Dave Hill to the White
2: House. Thank you for calling the White House comment line. Your comment is important
1: to the president.
2: Hi, this is Dave Hill, international superstar and amateur diplomat, calling the White House to leave a message for Donald Trump. Technically, the president is still trying to get used to calling you. That kind of like I imagine you probably had to get used to calling Satan, your Lord and Master, first. But anyway, I'm calling to make a suggestion. Instead of banning Syrian refugees, you could ban Steve Bannon, and not just for the obvious reasons, but also because I can't stand how he always wears random T-shirts under his dress shirts, like he's just coming from raking the leaves or something, which leads me to my next point. Ban anyone who wears a random T-shirt under their dress shirt. I know this might seem extreme, but these are extreme times. Also, ban anyone who rakes leaves. Get a leaf blower. They're way more fun and everyone knows it. I also want to ban guys named Jeff who spell it Off, like G-E-O-F-F. This one's hard for me since I know uh, some go who are very nice guys, but uh, I'm still sticking to it, had it. Uh, I also want to ban wrap sandwiches. Uh, they're just crappy burritos. Uh, no, I'm done. Let me know if you want to talk more about this. Kellyanne uh, has my contact info. I'll also tell her. She left uh, her sports bra at my apartment in 2004. Thanks.
0: Bye. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with somebody you think wouldn't normally get to hear this. Next week, we've got a special live episode. So if you're in New York City, come out to the taping. It's happening March 1st at Subculture, which is on Bleecker Street. You can get your tickets at subculturenewyork.com. In the meantime, check out this new podcast. It's called Missing Richard Simmons, and it follows filmmaker Dan Tversky on his search to find out what happened to Richard Simmons, who disappeared from the public three years ago. It's now out on iTunes and Stitcher. Maven in America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. This episode was produced by me, Maeve Higgins, and Shayna Feinberg, with help from Erica Romero, Julie smith Clem, Matt Chilts, Priyanka Srinivasan, Leetal Malad, Nick Bornstein, and Pat Masidi miller who wrote our theme music. The show was engineered by Cameron Drews and Brian Pugh, with music by Sending Letters to the Sea. Special thanks to Maz Hussain and to Ashraf Barista of MoSafar. Thanks too to Jason Zubau at The Asylumist. A big shout out to Etty Higgins and to our brother Kanan Madi. Check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Maven America for photos of Zaza, Reem, and their amazing baby boy, Kareem. More immigration stories next week.